0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 314 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue going around the world in 72 days with the intrepid woman reporter Nellie Bly. I do not have a podcast highlight this week. Last weekend was the Beyond Cana Marriage Retreat that we help with twice a year, as any regular listeners are well aware. And I feel lucky that we're getting this out, (laughs) even though I didn't have to read this story for you. It just takes up a lot of time beforehand getting ready and a lot of energy, although it's always fun and rewarding to put it on, but a lot of energy during. And so we're kind of crashed afterwards and left you know, kind of like you came back from a super energetic vacation or conference or something where you're getting through your daily routine, but that's it. And I had not had time to listen to anything lately. So we will just go on with our story. I had forgotten how much I love the way Mary Reagan reads this. I mean, I mentioned before that I liked her reading, but The expression, the bits of humor and slyness that she puts into her voice, I really think it brings it to life. You feel like you're really listening to the real, original Nellie Bly. Now, there were some things that I thought were so ingenious and showed us her character, such as even though she was turned down and she had made a good argument to the business manager and her editor that it didn't need to be a man who went... In fact, I thought, oh my gosh, I forgot. Of course, these were the times when you're a woman, you can't go alone, you'd need so much baggage, you need somebody to accompany you, and so she has a hand satchel, she can handle it. And I really liked the fact that even though they had said no, you can tell she went ahead and got ready anyway she needed some things. She needed to order a dress and she needed to do some other things like that very quickly. But she was ready. She had her bag. She was all set to go. So she wasn't going to let their no be indefinite or stop her. She was going to carry on the way she does when she's talking about getting her dress made. Never accept no for an answer and challenge the person to rise to the occasion. And what we're going to see on this trip around the world, she rises to the occasion. In fact, I totally forgot that she was seasick because she'd never been on a boat before. How's that for intrepid? Never been on a boat, but is going to go around the world. Mostly going to have to do it by boat or ship. Sorry, ship. And of course, I totally enjoyed the part where Jules Verne and his wife sent an invitation to her because they'd read about her great adventure, and so they want to meet her. That's going to come up, and you're just going to love that inside view of this great author. Around the World in 80 Days is one of my favorite of his books, and it was certainly a favorite when I was a kid. So it's really great to get this inside look at her. And with that, let's just get going. Let's catch up and dive in.
1: Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly. Chapter 4. Jules Verne at Home. Monsieur Jules Verne and Madame Verne accompanied by Mr. R. H. Sherard, a Paris journalist, stood on the platform awaiting our arrival. When I saw them I felt as any other woman would have done under the same circumstances. I wondered if my face was travel-stained, and if my hair was tossed. I thought regretfully, had I been travelling on an American train, I should have been able to make my toilette en route, so that when I stopped off at Amiens and faced the famous novelist and his charming wife— I would have been as trim and tidy as I would had I been receiving them in my own home. There was little time for regret. They were advancing towards us, and in another second I had forgotten my untidiness in the cordial welcome they gave me. Jules Verne's bright eyes beamed on me with interest and kindliness, and Madame Verne greeted me with the cordiality of a cherished friend. There were no stiff formalities to freeze the kindness in all our hearts, "'but a cordiality expressed with such charming grace "'that before I had been many minutes in their company "'they had won my everlasting respect and devotion. Monsieur Verne led the way to the carriages "'which awaited our coming. "'Madame Verne walked closely along by my side, "'glancing occasionally at me with a smile, "'which said in the language of the eye, "'the common language of the whole animal world, "'alike plain to man and beast, "'I am glad to greet you, "'and I regret we cannot speak together.' Monsieur Verne gracefully helped Madame Verne and myself into a coupe, while he entered a carriage with the two other gentlemen. I felt very awkward at being left alone with Madame Verne, as I was altogether unable to speak to her. Her knowledge of the English language consisted of no, and my French vocabulary consisted of oui, so our conversation was limited to a few apologetic and friendly smiles, interluded with an occasional pressure of the hand. Indeed, Madame Verne is a most charming woman, and even in this awkward position she made everything go most gracefully. It was early evening. As we drove through the streets of Amiens, I got a flying glimpse of bright shops, a pretty park, and numerous nursemaids pushing baby carriages about. When our carriage stopped, I got out and gave my hand to Madame Verne to help her alight. We stood on a wide, smooth pavement before a high stone wall, over the top of which I could see the peaked outlines of the houses. Monsieur Verne was not long behind us. He hurried up to where we were standing and opened a door in the wall. Stepping in, I found myself in a small, smoothly paved courtyard, the wall making two sides and the house forming the square. A large black, shaggy dog came bounding forward to greet me. He jumped up against me, his soft eyes overflowing with affection, and though I loved dogs and especially appreciated this one's loving welcome, still I feared that his lavish display of it would undermine my dignity by bringing me to my knees at the very threshold of the home of the famous Frenchman. Monsieur Verne evidently understood my plight, for he spoke shortly to the dog, who, with a pathetic droop of his tail, went off to think it out alone. We went up a flight of marble steps across the tiled floor of a beautiful little conservatory that was not packed with flowers, but was filled with a display just generous enough to allow one to see and appreciate the beauty of the different plants. Madame Verne led the way into a large sitting-room that was dusky with the early shade of a wintry evening. With her own hands, she touched a match to the pile of dry wood that lay in the wide-open fireplace. Meanwhile, Monsieur Verne urged us to remove our outer wrappings— Before this was done, a bright fire was crackling in the grate, throwing a soft, warm light over the dark room. Madame Verne led me to a chair close by the mantel, and when I was seated, she took the chair opposite. Cheered by the warmth, I looked quietly on the scene before me. The room was large, and the hangings and paintings and soft velvet rug, which left visible but a border of polished hardwood, were richly dark. On the mantel, which towered above Madame Verne's head, were some fine pieces of statuary in bronze, and, as the fire gave frequent bright flashes as the flames greedily caught the fresh wood, I could see another bronze piece on a pedestal in the corner. All the chairs artistically upholstered in brocaded silks were luxuriously easy. Beginning at either side of the mantel, they were placed in a semicircle around the fire, which was only broken by a little table that held several tall silver candlesticks a fine white angora cat came rubbing up against my knee then seeing its charming mistress on the opposite side went to her and boldly crawled up in her lap as if assured of a cordial welcome next to me in this semicircle sat mr sherard m jules verne was next to mr sherard he sat forward on the edge of his chair, his snow white hair, rather long and heavy, was standing up in artistic disorder; his full beard, rivalling his hair in snowiness, hid the lower part of his face, and the brilliancy of his bright eyes, that were overshadowed with heavy white brows, and the rapidity of his speech, and the quick movements of his firm white hands, all bespoke energy, life, with enthusiasm. The London correspondent sat next to Gilles Verne. With a smile on her soft, rosy lips, Madame Verne sat nursing the cat which she stroked methodically with a dainty white hand, while her luminous black eyes moved alternately between her husband and myself. She was the most charming figure in that group around the wood fire. Imagine a youthful face with a spotless complexion, crowned with the whitest hair, dressed in smooth, soft folds on top of a dainty head that is most beautifully poised on a pair of plump shoulders." Add to this face pretty red lips that open to disclose a row of lovely teeth, and large, bewitching black eyes, and you have but a faint picture of the beauty of Madame Verne. This day, when she met me, she wore a sealskin jacket and carried a muff, and on her white head was a small black velvet bonnet. On taking her wraps off in the house, I saw she wore a watered silk skirt, laid in side plates in the front, with a full straight black drapery that was very becoming to her short, plump figure." The bodice was of black silk velvet. Madame Verne is, I should judge, not more than five feet two in height. Monsieur Verne is about five feet five. Monsieur Verne spoke in a short, rapid way, and Mr. Sherard, in an attractive, lazy voice, translated what was said for my benefit. "'Has Monsieur Verne ever been to America?' I asked. "'Yes, once,' the answer came translated to me. "'For a few days only, during which time I saw Niagara.' I have always longed to return, but the state of my health prevents my taking any long journeys. I try to keep a knowledge of everything that is going on in America, and greatly appreciate the hundreds of letters I receive yearly from Americans who read my book. There is one man in California who has been writing to me for years. He writes all the news about his family and his home and country as if I were a friend, and yet we have never met. He has urged me to come to America as his guest." "'I know of nothing I long to do more than see your land from New York to San Francisco.' "'How did you get the idea for your novel, Around the World in Eighty Days?' I asked. "'I got it from a newspaper,' was his reply. "'I took up a copy of Le Siècle one morning, and found in it a discussion and some calculations showing that the journey around the world might be done in eighty days. "'The idea pleased me.' and while thinking it over, it struck me that in their calculations they had not called into account the difference in the meridians, and I thought, what a denouement such a thing would make in a novel! So I went to work to write one. Had it not been for the denouement, I don't think I should have ever written the book. I used to keep a yacht, and then I travelled all over the world studying localities. Then I wrote from actual observation. Now, since my health confines me to my own, I am forced to read up descriptions and geographies. Monsieur Verne asked me what my line of travel was to be, and I was very happy to speak one thing that he could understand, so I told him. My line of travel is from New York to London, then Calais, Brindisi, Port Said, Ismailia, Suez, Aden, Colombo, Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, "'San Francisco, New York.' "'Why do you not go to Bombay, as my hero Phileas Fogg did?' "'Monsieur Verne asked. "'Because I am more anxious to save time than a young widow,' I answered. "'You may save a young widower before you return,' "'Monsieur Verne said with a smile. "'I smiled with a superior knowledge, "'as women, fancy-free, always will at such insinuations. "'I looked at the watch on my wrist "'and saw that my time was getting short.' There was only one train that I could take from here to Calais, and if I missed it, I might just as well return to New York by the way I came, for the loss of that train meant one week's delay. "'If Monsieur Verne would not consider it impertinent, I would like to see his study before I go,' I said at last. He was only too happy to show it to me, and even as my request was translated, Madame Verne sprang to her feet and lighted one of the tall wax candles.' She started with the quick, springy step of a girl to lead the way. Monsieur Verne, who walks with a slight limp, the result of a wound, followed, and we brought up the rear. We went through the conservatory to a small room up through which was a winding stair, or, more properly speaking, a spiral staircase. Madame Verne paused at every curve to light the gas. Up at the top of the house, and along a hall that corresponded in shape to the conservatory below, Monsieur Verne went, Madame Verne stopping to light the gas in the hall. "'He opened a door that led off the hall, and I stepped inside after him. "'I was astonished. "'I had expected, judging from the rest of the house, "'that M. Verne's study would be a room of ample proportions and richly furnished. "'I had read so many descriptions of the studies of famous authors, "'and have dwelt with something akin to envy. "'Our space is so limited and expensive in New York.' on the ample room the beautiful hand-carved desks filled with costly trinkets the rare etchings and paintings that covered the walls the rich hangings and i will confess it i have thought it small wonder that amid such surroundings authors were able to dream fancies that brought them fame but when i stood in Monsieur verne's study i was speechless with surprise he opened a latticed window the only window in the room and Madame verne hurrying in after us "'lighted the gas-jet that was fastened above a low mantel. "'The room was very small. "'Even my little den at home was almost as large. "'It was also very modest and bare. "'Before the window was a flat-topped desk. "'The usual letter that accompanies and fills the desks of most literary persons "'was conspicuously absent, "'and the waste-basket that is usually filled to overflowing "'with what one very often considers their most brilliant productions, "'in this case held but a few little scraps.' On the desk was a neat pile of white paper, probably eight by ten in size. It was part of the manuscript of a novel that Monsieur Verne is engaged on at present. I eagerly accepted the manuscript when he handed it to me, and when I looked at the neat penmanship, so neat, in fact, that had I not known it was prose, I should have thought it was the work of a poet, I was more impressed than ever with the extreme tidiness of this French author, In several places he had most effectually blotted out something that he had written, but there was no interlining, which gave me the idea that Monsieur Verne always improved on his work by taking out superfluous things, and never by adding. One bottle of ink and one penholder was all that shared the desk with the manuscript. There was but one chair in the room, and it stood before the desk. The only other piece of furniture was a broad, low couch in the corner, and here, in this room, with these meager surroundings, Jules Verne has written the books that have brought him everlasting fame. I leaned over the desk, and looked out of the little latticed window which he had thrown open. I could see through the dusk the spire of a cathedral in the distance, while stretching down beneath me was a park, beyond which was the entrance to a railway tunnel that goes under Monsieur Verne's house, and through which many Americans travel every year on their way to Paris. Leading off from the study is an enormous library. The large room is completely lined with cases from ceiling to floor, and these glass-doored cases are packed with handsomely bound books which must be worth a fortune. While we were examining the wealth of literature that was there before us, Monsieur Verne got an idea. Taking up a candle and asking us to follow, he went out into the hall. Stopping before a large map that hung there, holding up with one hand the candle, he pointed out to us several blue marks. Before his words were translated to me, I understood that on this map he had, with the blue pencil, traced out the course of his hero, Phileas Fogg, before he started him in fiction to travel around the world in eighty days. With the pencil he marked on the map, as we grouped about him, the places where my line of travel differed from that of Phileas Fogg, Our steps lagged as we descended the winding stair again. It had come time to take farewell, and I felt as if I were separating from friends. Down in the room where we had been before, we found wine and biscuit on the little table, and Monsieur Jules Verne explained that, contrary to his regular rules, he intended to take a glass of wine, that we might have the pleasure of drinking together to the success of my strange undertaking." They clinked their glasses with wine and wished me Godspeed. "'If you do it in seventy-nine days, I shall applaud with both hands,' Verne said. And then I knew he doubted the possibility of my doing it in seventy-five, as I had promised. In compliment to me, he endeavored to speak to me in English, and did succeed in saying, as his glass tipped mine, "'Good luck, Nelly Bly.' Madame Verne was not going to be outdone by her gallant husband in showing kindness to me. She told Mr. Sherard that she would like to kiss me good-bye, and when he translated her kind request, he added that it was a great honor in France for a woman to ask to kiss a stranger. I was little used to such formalities, or familiarities as one may deem them, but still I had not one thought of refusing such delicate attention. So I gave her my hand and inclined my head, for I am taller than she— and she kissed me gently and affectionately on either cheek then she put up her pretty face for me to kiss i stifled a strong inclination to kiss her on the lips they were so sweet and red and show her how we do it in america my mischievousness often plays havoc with my dignity but for once i was able to restrain myself and kissed her softly after her own fashion with uncovered heads and despite our protestations they followed us out into the cold courtyard And as far as I could see, I saw them standing at the gate, waving farewell to me, the brisk winds tossing their white hair. Chapter 5 On to Brindisi When Monsieur and Madame Verne were no longer visible, my thoughts turned to my trip. I feared that the enjoyment of my visit to their home had jeopardized the success of my tour. The driver had been told to make the best speed back to the station, but the carriage seemed to be rolling along so quietly that I could not rest until it was urged again upon the coachman to reach the station in the shortest possible time. Some few moments after we reached there, the train came in. Bidding a hearty good-bye to Mr. Sherard, I started again on my tour of the world, and the visit to Jules Verne was a thing of the past. I had gone without sleep and rest— I had travelled many miles out of my way for the privilege of meeting Monsieur and Madame Verne, and I felt that if I had gone around the world for that pleasure, I should not have considered the price too high. The train which carried us to Calais is, I infer from what I have heard, the pride of France. It is called the club train, and it is built on the plan of vestibule trains in America. The carriages are so narrow that, after having been accustomed to wide ones, The club train seems like a toy. I have been curious to know why this train is called the club train. (laughs) I had a foolish idea at first that it was the private property of some club, run for the special benefit of its members, and I felt some hesitancy about traveling on a train devoted to the use of men. However, the presence of a number of women put me at ease, and though I made many inquiries about the train. All I could learn was that it was considered quite the finest equipped train in Europe. The car in which we sat, as I said before, contained some women, and was besides liberally filled with men passengers. Shortly after we left Amiens, a porter announced that dinner was served in the front car. Everybody at once filed out and into the dining car. I have thought since that probably the train carried two dining cars, because the dinner— and an excellent one it proved to be, was served table d'hote, and there seemed to be accommodations for all. After we had our cheese and salad, we returned to our drawing-room car, where we were served with coffee, the men having the privilege of smoking with it. I thought this manner of serving coffee a very pleasing one, quite an improvement on our own system, and quite worthy of adoption. When I reached Calais, I found that I had two hours and more to spend in waiting. The train that I intended to take for Brindisi is a weekly mail train that runs to accommodate the mails, and not passengers. It starts originally from London at 8 o'clock Friday evening of each week. The rule is that the persons desiring to travel on it must buy their tickets 24 hours in advance of the time of its departure. The mail and passengers are carried across the Channel, and the train leaves Calais at one-thirty in the morning. "'There are pleasanter places in the world to waste time in than Calais. "'I walked down along the pier and looked at the lighthouse, "'which, I am told, is one of the most perfect in the world, "'throwing its light farther away than any other. "'It is a revolving light, and it throws out long rays "'that seem so little above our heads "'that I found myself dodging to avoid being struck. "'Of course, that was purely imaginary on my part, "'for the rays are just the opposite to being near the ground.' But they spread between the ground and the sky like the laths of an unfinished partition. I wonder if the people of Calais ever saw the moon and stars. There is a very fine railway station built near the end of the pier. It is of generous size, but seemed, as far as I could judge at this hour of the night, quite empty. There is a smoothly tiled enclosed promenade on the side of the station facing the pier. "'that I should say would prove quite an attraction and comfort "'for passengers who are forced to wait in that place. "'My escort took me into the restaurant, "'where we found something to eat, "'which was served by a French waiter "'who could speak some English and understand more. "'When it was announced that the boat from England was in, "'we went out and saw the be-bundled and be passengers "'come ashore and go to the train which was waiting alongside. One thousand bags of mail were quickly transferred to the train.' and then I bade my escort good-bye, and was shortly speeding away from Calais. There is but one passenger-coach on this train. It is a Pullman Palace sleeping car, with accommodations for twenty-two passengers, but it is the rule never to carry more than twenty-one, one berth being occupied by the guard. The next morning, having nothing else to occupy my time, I thought that I would see what my travelling companions looked like, I had shared the stateroom at the extreme end of the car with a pretty English girl who had the rosiest cheeks and the greatest wealth of golden-brown hair I ever saw. She was going with her father, an invalid, to Egypt to spend the winter and spring months. She was an early riser, and before I was awake had gotten up and joined her father in the other part of the car. When I went out so as to give the porter an opportunity to make up my stateroom, I was surprised at the strange appearance of the interior of the car. All the head and footboards were left in place, giving the impression the coach was divided into a series of small boxes. Some of the passengers were drinking, some were playing cards, and all were smoking until the air was stifling. I never object to cigar smoke when there is some little ventilation, but when it gets so thick that one feels as if it is molasses instead of air that one is inhaling, then I mildly protest. It was soon this occasion— and I wonder what would be the result in our land of boasted freedom if a Pullman car should be put to such purposes. I concluded it is due to this freedom that we do not suffer from such things. Women travelers in America command as much consideration as men. I walked down the car, looking in the boxes, only to find them all occupied by unsocial-looking men. When I reached the middle of the car, my little English roommate, who was sitting with her father, "'saw me and kindly asked me to sit down with them. "'Her father I remember as a cultured, broad-minded man, "'with a sense of humour that helped me to hear with less dread "'the racking cough that frequently stopped all speech "'and shook his thin frame as though he had the ague. "'Father,' the little English girl said in a clear musical voice, "'the clergyman sent you his large prayer-book "'just before our departure, and I put it in your bag.' "'My daughter is very thoughtful,' he said to me. Then turning to her, he added, with a smile in his eye, "Please take the first opportunity to return the Prayer Book to the clergyman, and tell him, with my compliments, that he might have saved himself that trouble, that I was grieved to deprive him of his Book for so long." The young girl's face settled into a look that spoke disapproval of her father's words, and a determination not to return the Prayer Book. She held, clasped to her breast, a large prayer-book, and when her father jokingly told her, she had brought the largest one she could find, which he looked on as wasting valuable packing-space, when she could have carried a small one that would have been as much service. I was actually startled by the hard, determined light on her face. In everything else she was the sweetest, most gentle girl I have ever met, but her religion was of the hard, uncompromising kind that condemns everything— "'forgives nothing, and swears the heathen is forever damned "'because he was not born to know the religion of her belief. "'She spent all afternoon trying to implant the seeds of her faith in my mind, "'and I listened, thinking from her words "'that if she was not the original Catherine Ellesmere, "'she at least could not be more like that interesting character. "'For the first day food was taken on the train at different stations, "'and the conductor, or guard, as they called him, "'served it to the passengers.' A dining-car was attached in the evening, but I was informed by the women that it was not exactly the thing for us to eat in a public car with men, so we continued to be served in our staterooms. I might have seen more while travelling through France if the car-windows had been clean. From their appearance I judged they had never been washed. We did not make many stops. The only purpose of stopping was for coal or water, as passengers are not taken on or off this train between Calais and Brindisi. In the course of the afternoon, we passed some high and picturesque mountains that were covered with a white frost. I found that even wearing my ulster and wrapped in a rug, I was none too warm. About eight o'clock in the morning, we reached Modena. The baggage was examined there, and all the passengers were notified in advance to be prepared to get out and unlock the boxes that belonged to them. The conductor asked me several times if I was quite certain that I had no more than the handbag with me telling me at the same time if any boxes were found locked, with no owner to open them, they would be detained by the customs inspectors. When partly assured that I had no trunks, he said that it was not necessary to get out with my handbag, as no one would think it necessary to examine it. Half an hour later we were in Italy. I was anxiously waiting to see that balmy, sunny land, though I pressed my face close to the frosty window-pane, bleak night denied me even one glimpse of sunny italy and its dusky people i went to bed early it was so very cold that i could not keep warm out of bed and i cannot say that i got much warmer in bed the berths were provided with only one blanket each i piled all my clothing on the berth and spent half the night lying awake thinking how fortunate the passengers were the week previous on this train just in the very same place that we were traveling through Italian bandits had attacked the train, and I thought with regretful envy, if the passengers then felt the scarcity of blankets, they at least had some excitement to make their blood circulate. When I got awake in the morning, I hastily threw up the window shade and eagerly looked out. I fell back in surprise, wondering if for once in my life I had made a mistake and waked up early. I could not see any more than I had the night before, on account of a heavy gray fog that completely hid everything more than a yard away. Looking at the watch on my wrist, I found that it was ten o'clock, so I dressed with some haste, determined to find the guard and demand an explanation of him. "'It's a most extraordinary thing,' he said to me. "'I never saw such a fog in Italy before.' There was nothing for it, except to sit quietly counting the days I had been away from New York, subtracting them from the number that must elapse before my return." When this grew monotonous, I carefully thought over the advisability of trying to introduce brown uniforms for railroad employees in the United States. I thought with wearied frenzy of the universal employment of navy blue uniforms in America, and I turned with rest to the neat brown uniforms brightened with a touching of gold braid on the collars and cuffs that adorned the conductor and porter of the India mail but even this subject would not fill the day, so I began to notice the difference between the whistles employed on these engines and those at home. There was no deafening, ear-racking blast from these, but plaintive sounds pitched in a high key that was very soprano indeed, compared with our bass whistles. I noticed in Italy, as in all the other countries where I found railroads, that trains are started by a blast from a tin horn, horns such as those that take conspicuous places in political campaigns once every four years, succeeding by the aid of enthusiastic campaigners in making night hideous for several months preceding the election. In most cases, these hornblowers seemed to be located at the station, but in France and Italy they occupied the front platform of each coach, and I noticed with amusement that the tin horns were chained to them. All day I traveled through Italy, sunny Italy, along the Adriatic Sea. The fog still hung in a heavy cloud over the earth, and only once did I get a glimpse of the land I had heard so much about. It was evening, just at the hour of sunset, when we stopped at some station. I went out on the platform, and the fog seemed to lift for an instant, and I saw on one side a beautiful beach and a smooth bay dotted with boats bearing oddly shaped and brightly colored sails, which somehow looked to me like mammoth butterflies, dipping, dipping about in search of honey. Most of the sails were red, and as the sun kissed them with renewed warmth, just before leaving us in darkness, the sails looked as if they were composed of brilliant fire. A high rugged mountain was on the other side of the train. It made me feel dizzy to look at the white buildings perched on the perpendicular side. I noticed the road that went in a winding line up the hill had been built with a wall on the ocean side. Still, I thought I would not care to travel up it. I got out for a few minutes at the next station where we stopped to take our dinners. I walked into a restaurant to look about. It was very neat and attractive. Just as I stepped inside, a little girl with wonderful large black eyes and enormous gold hoop rings in her ears ran forward to me with the fearless boldness of a child. I touched her pretty black hair, and then naturally felt in my pocket for something to give her. Just as I drew forth a large copper coin, the less the value of a coin generally, the larger its size, a small man with a delicately refined face, flashing black eyes, wide expanse of white shirt-front broken by a brilliant diamond, came up and spoke to the baby. In the way she drew back from me, although her little hand had been stretched out expectantly before, I knew he had told her not to accept anything from me." I felt on first impulse like boxing his ears, he was so tiny and impudent. The guard coming in search of me found us at this critical moment. "'You have insulted him,' he said to me, as if I was not conscious of it. "'The Italians are the poorest and proudest people on earth. They hate the English.' "'I am an American,' I said bluntly and abruptly. At this, a waiter who had been standing close by, apparently not listening, but catching every word just the same, came up and spoke to me in English. Then I determined to remedy the fault I had committed, but nevertheless I had a dogged determination that the child should yet take the coin. What a beautiful restaurant, I exclaimed. I am passing hurriedly through Italy, and in my desire to see, judging from the samples of good cooking I have had en route, Italian eating houses are excellent. I hope I have not put you to any inconvenience. I almost forgot the restaurant when I saw that lovely baby. What exquisitely beautiful eyes, exactly the same as her father's, "'At least I judge from the similarity of their eyes that he is her father, "'though he looks so young.' "'The waiter smiled and bowed and translated. "'I knew he would, and that is why I said it all. "'Then the little man's pride melted away, "'and a smile replaced the frown on his face. "'He spoke to the baby who came up and shook hands with me. "'I gave her the coin, and our peace was sealed. "'Then the little father brought forth a bottle of wine.' and with the most cordial smiles and friendliest words begged me to accept it. I did not intend to be outdone, so I told the waiter that I must take some wine with me, insisted on paying for it, and with low bows and sweet smiles we took leave of one another, and I rushed after the guard to the train, boarding it just as the horn blew for it to continue on its way. We arrived in Brindisi two hours late. When the train stopped, Our car was surrounded with men wanting to carry us, as well as our baggage, to the boats. Their making no mention of hotels made me wonder if people always passed through Brindisi without stopping. All these men spoke English very well, but the guard said he would get one omnibus and escort the English women, the invalid man and his daughter, and myself to our boats, and would see that we were not charged more than the right fare. We drove first to the boat bound for Alexandria, where we took leave of my roommate and her father, then we drove to the boat that we expected to sail on. I alighted from the omnibus, and followed my companions up the gang-plank. I dreaded meeting English people with their much-talked-of prejudices, as I knew I would shortly have to do. I was earnestly hoping that everybody would be in bed. As it was after one in the morning, I hardly expected the trial of facing them at once. The crowds of men on the deck dispelled my fond hope. I think every man on board that boat was up waiting to see the new passengers. They must have felt but illy paid for the loss of their sleep, for besides the men who came on board, there were only the two large English women and my own plain and interesting self. These women were more helpless than I. As they were among their own people, I waited for them to take the lead. But after we had stood at the foot of the stairs for some time— gazed at by the passengers and no one came forward to attend to our wants which were few and simple i gently asked if that was the usual manner of receiving passengers on english boats it is strange very strange a steward or some one should come to our assistance was all they could say at last a man came down below, and, as he looked as if he were in some way connected with the boat, I ventured to stop him and inquire if it was expecting too much to ask if we might have a steward to show us to our cabins. He said, "'There should be some about,' and began lustily to call for one. Even this brought no one to us, and as he started to find one himself, I started in the opposite direction. Among the crowd that stood about was but one man that dared to speak without waiting for an introduction, before he could be commonly polite. "'You will find the purser in his office, the first door to the left there,' he said, and I went that way, followed by the guard from the train. Sitting in the office was the purser and a man I supposed to be the doctor. I gave my ticket, and a letter I had been given at the PO office in London to the purser. This letter requested that the commanders and pursers of all the P&O boats on which I traveled should give me all the care and attention it was in their power as such officers to bestow. After leisurely reading the letter, the purser very carelessly turned around and told me the number of my cabin. I asked for a steward to show me the way, but he replied that there did not seem to be any about, and that the cabin was on the port side." and with this meager information he impolitely turned his back and busied himself with some papers on the desk before him. The train guard, who still stood by my side, said he would help me find the cabin. After a little search, we did find it. I opened the door and stepped in, and the sight that met my eyes both amused me and dismayed me. At the opening of the door, two bushy heads were stuck out of the two lower berths, and two high pitched voices exclaimed simultaneously with a vexed intonation, OH I looked at the bandboxes, boots, handbags, gowns, and the upper berth that was also filled with clothes, and I echoed their Oh in a little different tone, and retired. I returned to the purser and told him I could not sleep in an upper berth, and would not occupy a cabin with two other women. After looking again over the letter I had brought him, as if to see how much weight he should give it, he referred me to another cabin. This time a steward made his appearance, and he took the part of an escort. I found a pretty girl in that cabin, who lifted her head anxiously, and then gave me a friendly smile when I entered. I put my bag down and returned to the guard who was waiting to take me to the cable office. I stopped to ask the purser if I had time to make the trip, "'to which he replied in the affirmative, with a proviso, "'If you worry.' "'The two women who had travelled with me from Calais "'had by this time found their way to the purser's office, "'and I heard them telling that they had come away from home "'and left their purse and tickets lying on the table in the sitting-room "'they had started in such a rush. "'The guard took me down the gangplank and along several dark streets. "'At last, coming to a building where a door stood open, "'he stopped and I followed him in.' The room in which we stood was perfectly bare, and lighted by a lamp whose chimney was badly smoked. The only things in the room were two stationary desks. On one lay a piece of blank paper before an ancient inkwell and a much-used pen. I thought that everybody had retired for the night, and the cable would have to wait until I reached the next port, until the guard explained to me that it was customary to ring for the operator, who would get up and attend to the message for me. Suiting the action to the words, the guard pulled at a knob near a small closed window, much like a postage-stamp window. The bell made quite a clatter. Still, I had begun to think that hopeless, when the window opened with a clink, and a head appeared at the opening. The guard spoke in Italian, but hearing me speak English, the operator replied in the same language. I told him I wanted to send a cable to New York. He asked me where New York was. I explained as best I could— Then he brought out a lot of books, through which he searched first, to know by which line he could send the message, at least so he explained, then what it would cost. The whole thing was so new and amusing to me that I forgot all about the departure of the boat, until we had finished the business and stepped outside. A whistle blew long and warningly. I looked at the guard. The guard looked at me. It was too dark to see each other, but I know our faces were the picture of dismay. My heart stopped beating, and I thought with emotions akin to horror. My boat was gone, and with it, my limited wardrobe. (sighs) "'Can you run?' the guard asked in a husky voice. I said I could, and he, taking a close grasp of my hand, we started down the dark street with a speed that would have startled a deer. Down the dark streets, past astonished watchmen and late pedestrians, until a sudden bend brought us in full view of my ship still in port.' The boat for Alexandria had gone, but I was saved. Chapter 6. An American Heiress I had not been asleep long, it seemed to me, until I waked to find myself standing upright beside my berth. It required but a second, a glance at my drenched self, and the sounds of vigorous scrubbing on the deck above to explain the cause of my being out of bed before I knew it. I had gone to sleep with the porthole open, and as my berth was just beneath it, I received the full force of the scrub water as it came pouring over the sides. I managed to let the heavy window down, and went back to bed, wet, but confident that I would not again be caught napping under such circumstances." I HAD NOT BEEN ASLEEP MANY MOMENTS UNTIL I HEARD A VOICE CALL, MISS, WILL YOU HAVE YOUR TEA NOW? I OPENED MY EYES AND SAW A steward STANDING AT THE DOOR, awaiting A REPLY. I REFUSED THE TEA, AS DID THE ENGLISH GIRL ON THE OTHER SIDE OF MY CABIN, MANAGING TO ANSWER HER BRIGHT SMILE WITH A VERY TIRED ONE. AND THEN I WAS OFF TO SLEEP AGAIN. MISS, WILL YOU HAVE YOUR BATH NOW? A VOICE BROKE IN ON MY SLUMBERS SHORTLY AFTERWARDS. I looked up in disgust at a little white-capped woman who was bending over me, tended to say I had just had my bath, a shower bath, but thought better of it before speaking. I know I said something about in a few minutes, and then I was asleep again. "'Well, you are a lazy girl. You'll miss your bath and breakfast if you don't get up this instant,' was my third greeting." My surprise at the familiarity of the remark got the better of my sleepiness, and I thought, well, by all that is wonderful, where am I? Am I in school again, that a woman dare assume such a tone to me? I kept my thoughts to myself and said stiffly, I generally get up when I feel so inclined. I saw my roommate was missing, but I felt like sleeping, and I decided to sleep. Whether it pleased the stewardess or not, it mattered little to me. "'The steward was the next one to put in an appearance. "'Miss, this ship is inspected every day, "'and I must have this cabin made up before they come,' "'he said complainingly. "'The captain will be here presently.' "'There was nothing to do but get up,' which I did. "'I found my way to the bathroom, "'but soon saw that it was impossible for me to turn on the water, "'as I did not understand the mechanism of the faucet. "'I asked a steward I saw outside the door, "'the whereabouts of the stewardess,' and was simply amazed to hear him reply, The stewardess is taking a rest and cannot be disturbed. After dressing, I wandered up on the next deck and was told that breakfast was over long ago. I went out on deck and the very first glimpse of the lazy-looking passengers in their summer garments, lounging about in comfortable positions, or slowly promenading the deck, which was sheltered from the heat of the sun by a long stretch of awnings, and the smooth, velvety-looking water, the bluest I have ever seen, softly gurgling against the side of the ship as it almost imperceptibly steamed on its course, and the balmy air, soft as a rose-leaf and just as sweet, air such as one dreams about, but seldom finds, standing there alone among strange people on strange waters, I thought how sweet life is. Before an hour had passed, I was acquainted with several persons. I had thought and expected that the English passengers would hold themselves aloof from a girl who was traveling alone, But my cabin companion saw me before I got away from the door, and came forward to ask me to join herself and friends. We first had an amusing search for the steamer chair, which I had told the guard to buy at Brindisi and send on before our departure. There were over three hundred passengers on the ship, and I suppose they averaged a chair apiece, so it can be easily pictured the trouble it would be to find a chair among that number. I asked where the deck stewards were, when at last I felt the search was useless. And was surprised to learn that a deck steward was an unknown commodity on the P and O line. I presume the quartermaster has charge of the decks, my companion said in conclusion, but we are expected to look after our own chairs and rugs, and if we don't, it is useless to inquire for them if they disappear. Shortly before noon, I became acquainted with an Englishman who belongs to the civil service in Calcutta. He had been in India for the last twenty years during which time he had repeatedly visited England, which made this trip an old story to him. He had made the same trip from Calais on the India Express as I had, and said he noticed me on the train. Learning that I was traveling alone, he devoted most of his time looking out for my comfort and pleasure. The bugle blew for luncheon, which is always called by the Indian title Tiffin, on ships traveling in eastern seas. The Englishman asked if I would go with him to Tiffin, "'and as I had gone without breakfast I was only too anxious to go at the first opportunity. "'The dining hall is on the second deck. "'It is a small room, nicely decorated, with tropical foliage plants, "'and looks quite cosy and pretty, "'but it was never intended to accommodate a ship carrying more than seventy-five first-class passengers. "'The head waiter, who stood at the door, stared at us blankly as we went in. "'I hesitated, naturally thinking that he would show us to some table,' "'but as he did not, I suggest to the gentleman with me "'that he ask before we take our places. "'Sit anywhere,' was the polite reply we received, "'so we sat down at the table nearest. "'We had just been served when four women, "'ranging from twenty-four to thirty-five, came in, "'and with indignant snorts of surprise, "'seated themselves at the same table. "'They were followed by a short, fat woman "'with a sweeping walk and an air of satisfied assurance,' who eyed us in a supercilious way, and then turned to the others with an air of injured dignity that was intensely amusing. They were followed by two men, and as there were only places for seven at the table, the elderly man went out. Two of the girls sat on a lounge at the end of the table, which made room for the young man. Then we were made to suffer. All kinds of rude remarks were made about us. They did hate people coming to their table, too bad papa was robbed of his place! Shame people had to be crowded from their own table! And similar pleasant speeches were hurled at us. The young woman who sat at my left was not content to confine her rudeness to her tongue, but repeatedly reached across my plate, brushing my food with her sleeves without one word of apology. I confess I never had a more disagreeable meal. I thought at first that this rudeness was due to my being an American, that they had taken this means of showing their hatred for all Americans. Still, I could not understand why they should subject an Englishman to the same treatment, unless it was because he was with me. After experiences showed me that my first conclusion was wrong, that I was not insulted because I was an American, but because the people were simply ill-bred. When dinner came, we found that we were debarred from the dining room, passengers who got on at London were given the preference, and, as there was not accommodations for all, the passengers who boarded the ship at Brindisi had to wait for second dinner. One never realizes, until they face such contingencies, what an important part dinner plays in one's life. It was nine o'clock when the dining-room was cleared that night, and the Brindisi passengers were allowed to take their places at the table. "'I hardly believe they took much else.' Everything was brought to us as it was left from the first dinner. Cold soup, the remnants of fish, cut up bits of beef and fowl, all down the miserable course until at last came cold coffee. I had thought the food on the India Express might have been better until after my experience on the P&O Steamer Victoria, and then I decided it might have been worse. Such a roar of complaint as went up from those late-dinner passengers. They wanted to get up a protest to serve on the captain, but I refused to take any part in it, and several of the more conservative ones followed my example. The two women I have already referred to as having traveled on the India Express to Brindisi were treated even worse than I was. When we made inquiries, we were told that at dinner only were the places reserved, but that at breakfast and Tiffin, first there, were first served. Acting on this information, they went in to early Tiffin the following day, and a young man who sat at the head of an empty table said to them as they went to sit down, You can't sit there. I reserve those places for some of my friends. They went to another table, and after sitting down were requested by some latecomers to get up and leave and give the places to them. The one woman cried bitterly over it. I am a grandmother, and this is the sixth trip I have made to Australia, and I was never treated so insultingly in my life. There are circumstances under which a trip on the Mediterranean would be like a dream of paradise if one were in love for instance for they do say that people in love do not eat and aside from the food the trip is perfect probably it is a hope of finding the cure that will help them to forget a stomach void that makes love the principal subject on the piano boats travellers who care to be treated with courtesy and furnished with palatable food Will never by any chance, travel on the Victoria. It is all rule and no practice on that ship. The impudence and rudeness of the servants in America is a standing joke, but if the servants on the Victoria are a sample of English servants, I am thankful to keep those we have such as they are. I asked the stewardess to assist a woman who looked as if she was dying of consumption to the deck with her rugs only to be told in reply that she would not help anyone unless they came and requested her to do so. I heard her tell a passenger one day that she did not believe it was sickness but laziness that ailed the woman. If complaints were made about the conduct of the servants, they were always met by the assertion that the servants had been for a long time in the company's employ and would take privileges. The commander of the ship set an example for rudeness. A Spanish gentleman of high position who was traveling to China, where he represented his country in the diplomatic service, also got on at Brindisi. He thought that his first duty was to pay his respects to the captain in charge of the ship, so he asked someone to point out the captain to him. This was done on deck. He walked up to the captain and with a profound bow, hat in hand, begged the captain's pardon, and said that he was the chargé d'affaires of China and Siam for the Spanish government, and he wished to pay his duty and respects to the captain of the boat on which he was travelling. The captain glared at him savagely for a moment after he had finished, and then asked rudely, "'Well, what of it?' The Spaniard was speechless for a moment, but recovering, he said politely, "'I beg your pardon.' "'I thought I was addressing a gentleman "'and the commander of this ship.' "'Turning, he walked away, "'and they never spoke afterwards. "'Although I had brought a letter to the captain, "'he never noticed me in any way. "'A bright-faced jolly boy, "'who was going to Hong Kong "'to enter the banking-house of his uncle, "'brought a letter to the captain. "'He presented himself one day on deck, "'stepping a foot or so away "'until the captain should have time "'to read it and greet him. "'The captain read the letter, "'folded it carefully, "'put it in his pocket, and walked away. "'He never spoke to the boy afterwards, "'and the boy was careful not to give him that trouble. "'The captain had a tongue for gossip, too. "'Every time I heard a sliding story about any of the passengers "'and would ask where it came from, "'the answer would always be, "'the captain had told it to somebody. "'Notwithstanding all annoying trifles, "'it was a very happy life we spent in those pleasant waters.' The decks were filled all the day, and when the lights were put out at night, the passengers reluctantly went to their cabins. The passengers formed two striking contrasts. There were some of the most refined and lovely people on board, and there were some of the most ill-bred and uncouth. Most of the women whose acquaintance I formed were very desirous of knowing all about American women, and frequently expressed their admiration for the free American woman, many going so far as to envy me while admiring my unfettered happiness two clever scotch women i met were travelling around the world but are taking two years at it one irish woman with a laugh that rivalled her face in sweetness was travelling alone to australia my cabin mate was bound for new zealand but she was accompanied by her brother a pleasant young englishman who insisted on relinquishing his place at first dinner in my favour and who stayed away despite my protests and my determination not to deprive him of a warm dinner. In the daytime the men played cricket and quats. Sometimes in the evenings we had singing, and other times we went to the second-class deck and listened to better music given by second-class passengers. When there were no chairs we would all sit down on the deck, and I remember nothing that was more enjoyable than these little visits." There was one little girl with a pale, slender face who was a great favorite with us all, though none of us ever spoke to her. She sang in a sweet, pathetic voice a little melody about who'll buy my silver herrings, until I know if she had tried to sell any we should have all bought. The best we could do was join her in the refrain, which we did most heartily. Better than all to me it was to sit in a dark corner on the deck above where the sailors had their food, and listened to the sounds of a tom tom and a weird musical chanting that always accompanied their evening meal. The sailors were lushkers. They were not interesting to look at, and doubtless if I could have seen as well as heard them at their evening meal, it would have lost its charm for me. They were the most untidy looking lot of sailors I ever saw. Over a pair of white muslin drawers they wore a long muslin slip, very like in shape to the old time night shirt. This was tied about the waist with a coloured handkerchief and on their heads they wore gaily-colored turbans, which are really nothing but a crown of straw with a scarf-shaped piece of bright cloth, often six feet in length, wound about the head. Their brown feet are always bare. They chant, as all sailors do when hoisting sails, but otherwise are a grim, surly-looking set, climbing about over the ship like a pack of monkeys. When I boarded the boat at Brindisi, the purser gave me some cables that had been sent to me, care of the Victoria. After we had been out several days, a young woman came up to me with an unsealed cable and asked if I was Nellie Bly. Upon telling her I was, she said that the purser had given the cable to some of the passengers the day before, as he did not know who Nelly Bly was, and after two days traveling among them, it reached me. Occasionally we would have a dance on deck to the worst music it has ever been my misfortune to hear. The members of the band also washed the dishes, and though I could not blame the passengers who always disappeared at the appearance of the musicians, still I felt sorry for them. It was both ridiculous and pathetic that they should be required to cultivate two such inharmonious arts. One of the officers told me that the band they had before were compelled to scrub the decks, and their hands became so rough from the work that it was impossible for them longer to fill the role of musicians. So they were discharged, and the new band were turned into dishwashers instead of deck scrubbers. I had not been on the Victoria many days until someone who had become friendly with me told me it was rumored on board that I was an eccentric American heiress, travelling about with a hairbrush and a bank book. I judged that some of the attention I was receiving was due to the story of my wealth. I found it convenient later on to correct the report when a young man came to me to say that i was the kind of girl he liked and as he was the second son and his brother would get both the money and the title his sole ambition was to find a wife who would settle a thousand pounds a year on him there was another young man on board who was quite as unique a character and much more interesting to me he told me that he had been traveling constantly since he was nine years old and that he had always killed the desire to love and marry because he never expected to find a woman who could travel without a number of trunks and bundles innumerable. I noticed that he dressed very exquisitely and changed his apparel at least three times a day, so my curiosity made me bold enough to ask how many trunks he carried with him. Nineteen was the amazing reply. I no longer wondered at his fears of getting a wife who could not travel without trunks."